Hey, pastors, we know you love your clerical shirt because of what it means, but how does it feel? Under all those vestments, is it hot and sticky? Is it too tight, too loose, or just not comfortable? Wicking Vicar has the solution for you. The Performance Clerical Shirt, featuring four-way stretch to let you move and moisture-wicking fabric to keep you cool. Plus, it's machine washable and wrinkle-resistant. Visit wickingvicar.com and treat yourself to more stretch, more movement, and easy care. The Performance Clerical from wickingvicar.com. wickingvicar.com. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering the conclusion and the history of how we got to the apology of the Augsburg Confession. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today, Pastor Jim Pierce. He is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Anaconda, Montana. Pastor Pierce, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you for having me on, Pastor Smith. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you and to get into really, it's really a more a show today, as we saw at the beginning of the Augsburg Confession today, more looking at some history things and some details of how these things kind of came together than it is looking at the theology. So we've kind of seen as we went through the Augsburg Confession, we basically used each article and the doctrine that that article presents to us to talk about that theology, that part of our doctrine in the church, and you know how that played out at the time of the Reformation. So you got some history there as we went along and things, but then also how this confession still matters for us today. It's the idea of the show, right? Concord matters, right? And so we kind of saw this all kind of coming together and the theology being presented there. And I mean, all of this is concerned with the theology that is being confessed and presented in the Augsburg Confession. So I'm not saying that it's not a part of it at all. But today, we're going to get a lot more of that kind of historical and some details and things of that nature and how this all kind of comes together. We're going to bridge that gap. As we went through, we made references to the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. We talked about the confutation that was the response to the Augsburg Confession, all those sorts of things we've been referencing. We want to get a little more detail of kind of how those things progress and unfolded after the Augsburg Confession and the presentation of it there in 1530 by the Lutherans. And so uh, that's what we've got in store for today. And then we'll be wrapping up our series here on the Augsburg Confession with this episode today. So Pastor Pierce, as we get into this episode then and bring things to a conclusion here and talk about all of these things, go ahead and give us again kind of the context, just kind of broad again, not a recap of everything that we set up at the very beginning of this series, getting into the Augsburg Confession itself, but just kind of give us a little recap of that in the context 
that will be helpful for us as we get into the conclusion and talking about all of these things that we're going to look at here today. Sure. Certainly, all of us remember what happened to uh, Luther when he was brought before the Diet of Worms in 1521. We all know about, here I stand, I can do no other. And Luther was asked to recant his faith, recant his confession of faith by representatives of the Pope right there in the presence of Charles V, and he refused. And of course, his refusal led to events such as his being excommunicated, being condemned to death, and all of this builds a context as to how we get to the presentation of the Augsburg Confession, specifically who's presenting it and why it is that they are presenting it. Um, That's important, just as important as the theological discussion, I believe, because this will also help us understand why we get to differences as far as, you know, what is the unaltered Augsburg Confession versus the altered Augsburg Confession. So questions are raised uh, in that area. Uh, What we could take a look at, too, is that after Luther is condemned, after the Diet of Worms, a process begins with his patron, John the Steadfast. And this process is, what is it that we do confess, right? And so a series of meetings are called, one of which happens in the castle Torgau in March of 1530, where Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Justice Jonas, uh, or you could say Eustace, I guess it depends on what part of the country you're from, uh, and Dietrich, they're joined together. They write these articles for the prince, John the Steadfast. And what it's meant to do is articulate in full what it is that sets the Lutherans apart from everyone else. What is it that we confess as Lutherans, but also to demonstrate that Lutherans are not, for the lack of a better word, perhaps a cult, right? We are not heretics. We are not schismatics. In fact, we confess the one true faith. After Torgau, after writing these articles, what's going on in the uh, empire under Charles V and with the Lutherans is Charles, he has this problem with Turkish armies literally on the border. And he needs the German princes to coalesce, to come together to repel the Turks who are invading. Uh, So he, he has to have them together and he knows that he can't just have a political alliance. He has to have a political and religious alliance. There's no, no such thing as church and state being separated in terms of the way we think about it as Americans, right? Uh, so he's building this alliance together. It's an alliance both of politics and faith. And so he sees his German lands exploding under Lutheranism. He doesn't know what it is that he's going to do. And so he calls on the Lutheran princes to come and make a confession of their faith 
so that he can hopefully have some common ground with the Lutheran princes in order not just to continue, you know, Roman Catholicism in the lands. That's important by far because Charles is a devout Catholic, but also he wants to build this coalition to fight the Turks. And then, of course, there's the tax money that's needed as well. You can't have the princes, the German princes, removing themselves from Roman Catholicism because that's really a loss of revenue. So they're called together. The Lutheran princes are called together by Charles to make a confession of faith. And that's when the Lutheran theologians are tapped to write our confession of faith in the Augsburg Confession, and that's done at Coburg Castle. That's where our Lutheran theologians come together, they're writing, and then from Coburg Castle in April of 1530, Melanchthon and others travel to Augsburg. Uh, It's obvious that Luther can't go to Augsburg because he's got a death sentence hanging over his head. So Melanchthon is tapped kind of as the lead, if you will say, the theological lead, he's tapped to write the Augsburg Confession. And then, of course, he's also tapped by the other Lutheran theologians and Luther himself, this is very important, to present the Augsburg Confession to Charles V. Yeah, as you lay out there, I think the phrasing you used was, you know, maybe some of the history and the political things going on are as important as the theology. And sometimes we may get scandalized by a statement like that. And in general, we just kind of have this desire, especially as pastors and theologians in the church, right? We just want theology and doctrine to be pure and only about the theology. We only want it to be about the doctrine, right? We want these things to be pure. But the reality is, is the life in this world, in this sin-broken world, right, it just never really works out that way. And we see that in our parishes and in congregations and things on a regular basis, certainly at the synodical level and things as well, right? It's never just pure theology, right? There's political things going on behind the scenes. And I mean that both in terms of kind of secular politics at times, but also just, you know, kind of the the way that people orchestrate things for things that are going on that are really kind of separate from the matters of theology and things like that. And so you certainly see that playing out here with the Augsburg Confession, right? And so it certainly is an influence of what's going on. You know, we can't just have this pure presentation of our doctrine without the fact that the princes have these political concerns going on, right? And that probably helps gain their support for, yes, this confession of our faith, according to Scripture, is important, And so I won't say that it is, you know, that these other things are on the same level as the pure confession of the truth, right? I'm not, I'm not making that statement and none of us are, right? but without those other things going on, maybe, maybe we don't even get this, right? Right. You know, (laughs) it's so, uh, we, we can't ignore those things. And so that always gives me a lot of comfort when there's, you know, kind of these maneuverings and things going on, especially at the congregational level, right? And everything is like, well, you know, this has kind of been the the history of how things go, right? And so, you know, how can I be aware of that and respect that and recognize that sometimes that gives you an opportunity for confession that may not exist otherwise and trust that the Lord directs these things. And so it is important to kind of get that context as we get into 
bringing to a conclusion here what has been presented and so forth. Is there anything else that you want to set up here for us before we kind of get to the reading the conclusion of the Augsburg Confession here? Sure. Yeah. And I think I, I just want to reiterate what, what you just now said. And that is, you know, what I mean here by the importance of the history. What I mean by that is that the Lord always works through the left-handed kingdom, right? So we don't, uh, we cannot really isolate history, so to speak, from God, because God's working through history. Now, that's not the way that he brings to us his grace. We know that he works faith in us through his holy word. And so, obviously, his word has preeminence, right? But nonetheless, his word is moving through the world on a timeline. And we have the opportunity here with our confession to look back on the timeline and say, oh, this is what happened. Or these are the events that led to the writing of the apology, for example. Absolutely. That's well said. Are we ready to get into the reading the conclusion itself? Sure. Let's take a look at it. All right. So as we get into this, just a reminder that, you know, they set out at the beginning there of the Augsburg Confession that it was the princes that were presenting this. And so we're going to see that reflected as we get into the conclusion here. And as we get into this, just a reminder that, of course, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, which is available to you from Concordia Publishing House, a publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is the section titled Conclusion to the Augsburg Confession, and starting with paragraph one here. These are the chief articles that seem to be in controversy. We could have mentioned more abuses, but here we have set forth only the chief points in order to avoid making this confession too long. From these chief points, the rest may be easily judged. There have been, for example, great complaints about indulgences, pilgrimages, and the abuse of excommunication. Our parishes have been troubled in many ways by dealers in indulgences. There were endless arguments between the pastors and the monks about who has the right in parishes to hear confessions, do funerals, give sermons on extraordinary occasions, and innumerable other things. We have passed over such issues so that the chief points in this matter briefly set forth might be more easily understood. Nothing has been said or brought up for the rebuke of anyone. We have mentioned only those things we thought it was necessary to talk about so that it would be understood that in doctrine and ceremonies, we have received nothing contrary to Scripture or the Church Universal. It is clear that we have been very careful to make sure no new ungodly doctrine creeps into our churches. We present these articles in accordance with your Imperial Majesty's Edict in order to show our confession and let people see a summary of our teacher's doctrine. If there is anything that anyone might desire in this confession, we are ready, God willing, to present more thorough information according to the scriptures. And then it is signed here, Your Imperial Majesty's faithful subjects, John, Duke of Saxony, Elector, George, Margrave of Brandenburg, Ernst, Duke of Lunenburg, Philip, Landgrave of Hesse, John Frederick, Duke of Saxony, Francis, Duke of Lunenburg, Wolfgang, Prince of Anhalt, Senate and Magistracy of Nuremberg, Senate of Rulingen. All right. And I probably butchered some of those titles, but that is the conclusion of the Augsburg 
confession on church authority. I should really, you know, with a show like this, I should be better at my German pronunciations and just everything else as well. You know, I've butchered Latin on here before and things like that, but uh, not not the main point uh, here. I just have a heavy tongue and can't pronounce things properly. But a lot going on here with this conclusion that, you know, we've kind of made these points as we went along through the articles and everything that, you know, it is interesting. There's no article, especially with those abuse articles that we've just been covering and towards the end here that really were the original Augsburg Confession, as we've talked about, you know, those Torgau articles. And then we realized we needed to just kind of back up and present, you know, look, we are with the Church Universal, the Church Catholic. And so we kind of, you know, put on those earlier articles to show that connection. We've talked about those sorts of things. You can get into more of that here, too, obviously, as well. But we've mentioned how it's kind of interesting, you know, like indulgences isn't one of the articles. And if there was anything that started the Reformation, right, it was indulgences. Right, right. But they say, you know, there's a lot of abuses here, but I think this is a great and key point here. They say, but the things we have covered provide more than enough of, you know, how these other things should be understood and addressed, right? You know, these chief points certainly set forth. And, you know, we see in there, you know, we always go to Augsburg Confession 4, right, on justification, right? If you get that wrong, you get everything else wrong. And we've seen those connections and talked through those sorts of things as well. But here they're saying, you know, these are the chief things. And obviously there are other things going on, but if you can't get the concord on these matters, then we're not going to make any headway. It just becomes an endless list of things that could go on and on and on. So get us into some of this conclusion here and what's going on with all of this here. Right. Well, I, I really like, we could have said more, you know, the length of the discussion for our confessors always points to what is going to be said necessarily. That is the gospel, right? It's pointing at our justification. And so when we take, when we took a look at all the articles that we were confessing, the chief article was the article to stand out. We wanted the Roman church to see the gospel and how we are justified by faith alone in Christ Jesus. And so, of course, they could have said more. Of course, there were more abuses, but then how would those abuses have related to the gospel, right? So they, they really see themselves as delimiting the discussion so that, you know, once again, we can just point to Christ and him crucified for the sins of the whole world and know that we are justified by his grace through faith alone in Christ. So I think that really stands out for me. I think it's really wonderful. Also, I have to think, though, in the back of my head, right, that perhaps that's a conciliatory note for Charles V. You know, uh, again, we're, we've talked before about politics. Uh, and again, here we perhaps we're seeing that they're being ironic on purpose, right? This is not by accident because they don't want Charles to feel like he's being blasted out of the water, so to speak, right? You know, they're telling Charles, here we are. Here are the things that we could agree on. Won't you agree with us? So it's really, I think, it's really an invitation to Charles and to all of Roman Catholicism to come on board, agree with this confession of faith. 
everything that we've said so far is not heretical. There's no problem here with us and the scriptures. There should be no problem here between Roman Catholicism and the Lutherans. And then, you know, of course, the signatories, they're putting their names on this and they're saying, you know, loud and clear, hey, we've been Roman Catholic all of our life, right? But here's our confession of faith. This is what you ought to be confessing, Charles. This is what the Pope ought to be confessing. So here it is, right in front of you. Come and confess it with us. So yeah, I'm I'm probably going uh, a little too far with this, but I really think by just narrowing it down, our confession, when we could have went further, we are showing a lot of grace to his imperial majesty as the conclusion points out. Yeah. And, you know, again, because there's kind of the political movements and things going on in the background, that's one of the reasons it's helpful to understand that that's in the background because, you know, they, they don't want to be against their emperor. Right. Right. And, you know, we, we always make this point and sometimes I think maybe it's made kind of too heavily in some instances and sometimes made too light of, but, you know, it is kind of the standard point that we make of, you know, Luther didn't desire to start a new church and, you know, what he genuinely wanted as well as everyone else who was with him and so forth. They wanted reform of the church, right? And, and a return to the faithful teaching of scripture and things of that nature, right? And so even in some sense, while things had played out by this time that, you know, there was definitely this big divide and some nasty things that happened, you know, as you said, Luther was in excommunication, right? right. And, potentially, you know, going to have his head handed to him, you know, right. if, uh, if he uh, gets out from uh, uh, underneath his protector, keeping him safe, his prince, right? And so, you know, there's some nasty things going on in that end and so forth. But to nonetheless, they didn't even necessarily want to break from the Pope, right? right? And so, uh, you know, trying to be conciliatory here and make this good confession. And I like how you put it there, you know, it's oftentimes kind of the the more influential, uh, larger, if you will, it's viewed that you got to get on board with them, right? But I like the way that you framed it up. It's the Lutherans saying, look, get on board with us, right? Because you know, here's the faithful confession. And maybe that's not always considered here, but uh, I think that's a good point to make. And so uh, as they, you know, list some of these things, uh, do you want to make any points about this? You know, again, kind of the indulgences, the pilgrimages, excommunication, Any kind of points that you'd like to make on any of those sorts of things here? Sure. Well, you know, specifically indulgences. um, What's really interesting about uh, about an indulgence is that it's something that is sold to lay men by Rome, and basically, what it allows is for a lay person who might be in a territory that's under an interdict by the Pope meaning that that entire territory, uh, inside that territory, nobody is allowed to receive the Lord's Supper. They're literally being punished. And it's actually a really terrible thing because the forgiveness of sins is being withheld from them until they do the will of the Pope. So what an indulgence will allow is for that layperson who might be in that territory to receive the Lord's Supper. They'll be allowed to receive the forgiveness of their sins. You know, it's kind of like, let's put this in a different context, perhaps. One that I hope would never, ever happen 
But, you know, it would be like a pastor, a Lutheran pastor, telling a person in their congregation that you are not going to have the Lord's Supper. You're not allowed to have the Lord's Supper anywhere within our territory, within our district. And it's not because you have an unrepentant sin that you're practicing. That's a different story, right? That's something completely different. But you're not allowed to have it because you disagree with me about something in the left-handed kingdom, something that's purely political, right? I wanted the church to have the red carpet. You voted for the purple carpet. And uh, so guess what? You're banned from the Lord's Supper. Again, it sounds ridiculous. But really, you know, it's kind of what's going on in the Roman church at this time. And of course, there's other more strident matters, disagreements that are causing entire, you know, basically kingdoms to have an interdict imposed upon them by the Pope. But nonetheless, what this indulgence allows for is for a lay person, for instance, a prince, to go ahead and purchase the forgiveness of sins so that they can receive the Lord's Supper, so that they can go, for instance, to confession, have absolution, and work off their sins according to the prescription of their priest. And of course, as you make that point, you know, there's probably several listeners out there that are saying, wait, I thought this had to do with purgatory and time off of purgatory and those sorts of things. That's generally what we think of indulgence. Do you want to talk about that connection at all? Sure. Right. So yeah, you know, this is one thing that really made Luther irate. I mean, this is what leads us to 1517, the 95 theses, and that is this idea that I can buy an indulgence and spring myself from time in purgatory. Kind of putting this into context, it's estimated, I've heard, I don't know, (laughs) because it's not scriptural, so I say I don't know, but it is estimated that every one of us are going to spend at least two million years in purgatory. So, Pastor Smith, knowing that you've got a two million year sentence hanging over your head in purgatory, wouldn't you like to lessen your time? And of course, the answer is yes. You know, if that is true, if that's the truth of the scriptures, which it's not, but if it were, who in their right mind as a Christian would not want to lessen their jail time, so to speak, right? And uh, so how you could go about doing that is you could buy an indulgence, use your hard-earned money, buy the indulgence, and you'll receive time out of purgatory. Uh, How much time you want depends on how much money that you give. You could also go on a pilgrimage. Going on a pilgrimage, what that means is you travel to specific uh, locations, typically monasteries, where they'll have a relic, a relic of a saint, a relic maybe uh, of the cross, a piece of the cross that Jesus was crucified to, maybe one of the nails that were nailed through our Lord's hands and feet. That was the claim that, you know, some of these relics, they claimed that they had the actual nails that crucified our Lord to the cross. So you would take a pilgrimage and you would go visit that relic. You'd go to one of the nails that pierced our Lord and you would pray and that would give you time off of purgatory. 
And so the more places you visited, the more time out of purgatory you received. Yeah, which then we see that connection there with the pilgrimages and as you talked about with the indulgences and what it was, at least originally anyway, too, right? Then we see that the other thing that they list there is the abuses of excommunication. You know, if I say you can't have the Lord's Supper and you can't have the forgiveness of sins attached with it, right? Then, you know, you got to buy it through this indulgence. And, and then that's taken and turned into this, you know, money-making scheme. The Catholics are really good at making money, right? We got to give them right. that. Uh, but uh, they turn that into this this purgatory doctrine. It just kind of becomes this whole thing. And we start to see how these are all connected. And again, how they connect back to these chief articles that they did cover, right? All right, so we've laid all that foundation. We got to take a break here. But on the other side of the break, I want to pick up and talk about where we kind of left it off there of, you know, this is signed by these princes and the Senate, these two Senates and things of that nature, right, you know, and presented here as the Lutherans do put forward as the confession of the Lutherans. And we want to kind of bring that to a close here, that conclusion, and talk about the response, how the Roman Catholics responded to all of that. So we'll get that on the other side of the break here as we continue talking with our guest today, Pastor Jim Pierce. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The life of the Christian church is a life in exile. We are grieved by various trials. False teachers and their deceptive teachings wage war against the truth. How can we believe and live as faithful and joyful Christians while we sojourn here? This is Pastor Timothy Apple, host of Sharper Iron. We're starting a new series, The Imperishable Inheritance. We will be going through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Join us every weekday morning at 8 on KFUO to rejoice in the imperishable inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Hey, Concord Matters listeners, as we wrap up our Augsburg Confession series here today, I also need to announce to you that I am also wrapping up my time as host of Concord Matters here in a couple weeks. It has just come to be the time that I'm not able to meet the demands of being host of this show and also a parish pastor, especially settling into a new congregation as I now serve Bethlehem here in Mason City, Iowa, but also be a husband and a father with a growing family. Just so many wonderful blessings from God, and certainly being host of this show has also been a great blessing and an honor, of which I am truly thankful for, but now must come to an end as I shift my focus to those other more primary vocations that God has given me for now. So I have two more episodes that I'd like to do looking at why Concord matters for missions, especially looking at mission congregations and church planting, as well as our international Lutheran partners as I plan to talk with several excellent guests we have lined up who are all faithfully laboring in those fields with our Lutheran confession, leading them in that work. So please join me for these next two weeks, and then at the end of August, I will step aside and let our good friend and faithful confessor, President Brady Finnern, take over as host of Concord Matters. As I wrap up, I just want to say I'm so honored and thankful for KFO Radio for allowing me the opportunity to confess Christ and our Lutheran confessions here for Seven years here now, almost exactly, as I was first here on Concord Matters on September 8th in 2015. That was as a guest with then-host Charlie Hendrickson. So thankful to him for having me on as a guest so many times early on, and I'm thankful for the cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians that we had here for a while, and for all of the excellent pastors and even a few lay theologians that have honored me to be guests here on Concord Matters and help us teach the Lutheran Confession of the Faith week after week. 
And of course, I'm thankful for you, dear listener, all five of you. But uh, seriously, I'm honored by all who have listened to the show, whether it has been your first time today or if you're a faithful listener week after week for the last almost nine years now with all of the other excellent hosts the show has had as well. Truly, we just love to confess Christ and his teaching. So thank you for that honor to be able to do that with you here on KFO Radio. And hey, that confession keeps going and always will into eternity. So keep confessing, church. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our Augsburg Confession series here, actually bringing it to a close today as we take a look at the conclusion, getting into the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Of course, in between there, you got the computation and also talking, we want to talk about here today, this unaltered Augsburg Confession, which would then imply that there's an altered Augsburg Confession. A lot to get into yet here. Uh, we went a little long in our first half here, so we'll maybe seem like we're a little rushed here as we try to get in, but a lot that we want to cover here today. So as we continue talking with our guest, Pastor Jim Pierce, he is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Anaconda, Mon- Montana. Uh, let's just get back into it here then. So we laid kind of the context again, just kind of an overview again of the Augsburg Confession, what was going on with that. We covered the conclusion there, and it ends with, you know, all of these princes and, uh, well, really, most of them are dukes, right, as it's listed here. And then you got those two senates. So they signed this, and we talked about, you know, some of the political things going on in the background and context that was a part of this as well. So uh, Pastor Pierce, get us into this. So they signed this, and then, uh, you know, what happens in response to that? Go ahead and pick us up there. Sure. Yeah. So they signed this. They make this confession their own public confession. They do this right in front of Charles V. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Charles was very upset by this, made him irate. If anything, he wanted them to recant as they wanted Luther to originally recant. But the Lutheran princes would not do that at all. In fact, to point this out to underscore this a little more, Charles V invited the Lutheran princes to attend the Corpus Christi Festival right after the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. And when he uh, asked them to attend the festival, that would be a sign of them recanting our confession, that they were coming on board with Charles V and with the Pope. Instead, the Lutheran princes refused. They would not attend the Corpus Christi Festival. They said that if anything, we are ready, God willing, to die for this. We will give our heads rather than renounce the gospel of our Lord. And so, as uh, history bears out, Charles responded to that saying, no, we will not cut off your heads. So the Lutherans, our confessors, our Lutheran fathers, were very much devoted to the gospel, confessing the gospel, willing to lay down their lives for that. And that was apparent to Rome. Rome, of course, was not happy about that confession of faith, especially as we've pointed out already what's going on, not only politically, but also with people leaving the Roman church and becoming Lutherans. So the Roman church prepared a response 
to uh, the Augsburg Confession, we know that response as the pontifical confutation of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, how do you like that name? <laughs> um, so that confutation, uh, the short of that title, was prepared. And guess what happened? You would think that the Lutherans would have gotten a copy of it, but they were never delivered a copy of it. So now what do we do? How do we respond to this confutation we know about? We hear it, but we've never, our Lutheran fathers never receive a copy of it to deal with that. Yeah, and as you talk about that too, I think an interesting historical note in there as well is that it seems like it's just kind of being this jerk move of, you know, well, we're not going to give you the confutation unless you agree to it and those sorts of things. And it was certainly by and large that, right? But we do have the confutation available to us. Uh, you can go to bookofconcord.org. And there were some stenographers which, you know, would have done an excellent job of basically providing a transcription. You know, of course, remember the princes are there making this presentation. They've got folks that work for them that do this and do it well. And so we have what was probably a pretty good copy of it done by these stenographers as well. So it's available, and we've referenced several things from that as we've gone through with these various articles. Uh, go ahead and get us then into the Apology the Augsburg Confession from that confutation then. Sure. So the Apology of the uh, Augsburg Confession, it was first released as Melanchthon's personal opinion. It wasn't really adopted by the Lutheran princes in Augsburg initially, right? So here we can point to the apology and say that the apology really is the work of Melanchthon, right? He's pretty much done, you know, the heavy lifting on his own. But that that changes in this sense, and that is after our Lutheran theologians, after the princes read the apology, it becomes apparent that really this is the response to the confutation. This is our confession of faith. So, for instance, you have Eustace Jonas, Justice Jonas, however you'd like to pronounce his first name there. Uh, he's a colleague and friend of Melanchthon, and he decides that he should prepare a translation for the apology. And this translation is presented to the Lutheran princes. And then in 1533, or thereabouts, in a letter to Christians in Leipzig, we have Luther referring to it and asking the Lutheran princes to adhere to the Augsburg Confession and the Apology. By 1577, the Apology, of course, is included in the Formula of Concord as a list of our doctrinal statements. So it becomes part of our Lutheran symbols officially, if you'd like to say, in 1577. Yeah, uh, another interesting historical note to make here in connection with this, and I'm going to bring this in just because I've personally heard Pastor Paul McCain, who now rests from his labors by faith in Christ, but uh, was general editor of the edition of Concordia Lutheran Confessions that we use of that reader's edition of the Book of Concord here on Concord Matters. I've heard him talk about this, that when you get into the apology, you get kind of different numbers, and they have some in you know, if our listeners read along in their own books of Concord and things like that. And sometimes it gets a little confusing of 
you know, why is this a different article number and things right. like that. And some of that comes out of what you talked about with Eustace Jonas of uh, the German copy and things like that. And that also, you know, you had Melanchthon write that initial response, but then when they came back, it wasn't received by the emperor as he kind of famously, you know, refused to even touch it, you know, kind of thing. And and said, no, you know, I, I won't receive that. And the Lutherans go away from Augsburg, you know, they're not given a chance to present that apology. The emperor just wanted them to to accept the confutations, accept the demands, and fall in line, right? But Melanchthon had worked up that apology, but it gets refined a little bit as the Lutherans go back, and Luther certainly had input there. He had input even while they were at Augsburg. They had messengers going back and forth and so forth. But you get those different article numberings, and there can be different paragraph numberings and those sorts of things. And I bring that all up because it can seem confusing. And sometimes, you know, even when you talk about that, there were kind of different copies, if you will, and different versions. One of the things that I appreciate that Paul McCain always emphasized with this is that the copy that is a part of the Book of Concord that the Lutherans put out in 1580, right? The Book of Concord. That's what we subscribe to, right? And that's the copy that is used in our Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. There are other editions that are called the Book of Concord, and Paul McCain famously used to say that, you know, that's not really rightly the Book of Concord, because uh, there's one published by the ELCA, but in consort with some LCMS folks, that is commonly used by a lot of folks, but it will even have other sections, and it's because it's really more just a presentation of the Lutheran Confessions and some other additions, if you will, maybe even earlier editions of that apology, especially. And so Paul McCain would always reference it this way. You know, he said, that's kind of like saying, you know, we have the Constitution of the United States, but we're going to go back and go to the earlier editions of that, you know, as if they, <laughs> they were, you know, as they're still working it out. No, it's we go off of what was adopted, right? And we said, this is our Constitution. And so when we're talking about the apology of the Augsburg Confession, it is what was put in the Book of Concord of 1580 that is accepted. And that's what we have in our Concordia Lutheran Confessions, even though we have kind of references to some of the other influences that came out from these multiple copies. But even as I get into that history and bring that in here, you know, that again, that's just so that we kind of understand that there's multiple things going on here and some revisions and some working out and so forth before we get to that apology that we have presented and have referenced here and so forth. There's also this other thing going on that as we wrap up the Augsburg Confession, um, you know, uh, I, I'm now here in Mason City, Iowa, but previously and for the bulk of this series, I was pastor of a dual parish in Southern Illinois, and both of those congregations had in their official titles, like in the Constitution and so forth, that they were, you know, like St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Congregation of Wine Hill UAC of the unaltered Augsburg Confession is what that UAC stood for. And a lot of our churches, um, and there's just kind of a different history here in Mason City, so that's not a part of the official name. They are, they do subscribe to the unaltered Augsburg Confession here in Mason City uh, at Bethlehem by all means, but uh, it's not a part of their official title. But a lot of our older congregations, like those that I formerly served, have that UAC in there. And so if there's this unaltered Augsburg Confession that is a big deal, so much so that our congregations put that in their name, and, you know, that's what we subscribe to, and it's at least usually in our church constitutions in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and so forth. I think it's important that as we do this series on the Augsburg Confession and bring it to its conclusion here that we talk about that 
And that is different than what I talked about in the kind of various editions of that apology and so forth. It's with the Augsburg Confession itself. And so get us some of that history here as well. Sure. So, you know, the uh, unaltered Augsburg Confession is what we have in 1530, right? It's the uh, confession that was presented to Charles V. And there's a lot of history around, you know, the document itself as to whether the, you know, the German and the Latin documents were preserved. Uh, do they exist today? Where might they be found? And it, it's almost, when, when I was looking into the history of this, it's almost like watching the program Ancient Aliens. I mean, you just, you, you don't know what happened to these documents. But what we do know is that even though we might not have the signed copy anymore, of these documents in our possession. We certainly know what that signed document is, what that confession is. And that means something. That really means something because the signers, they put their name on a finished product. They're saying, this is what we believe, teach, and confess. But what happens with the Augsburg Confession is that Philip Melanchthon, uh, at, probably at first, decides that he wants to fine-tune it. So we have a variation of the Augsburg Confession of 1530 as early as 1531, where Melanchthon is just making some maybe minor corrections to the document. But this continues. Melanchthon continues to refine the document. So we have an addition of the Augsburg Confession from 1533, another from 1540, and another as late as 1542. And it can't be denied that Melanchthon's making these changes not merely in the interest of teaching, right? He's not making these changes simply as an editor going through and making sure there's proper grammar, even though he does these sort of things. But at least in a number of these documents, especially the one of 1540, Melanchthon is making some major changes, uh, in particular, Article 10 on the Lord's Supper. Uh, and we can talk about that if, if you like. But the point here being is that our Lutheran confessors signed this document, the original in 1530. It was signed, sealed, and delivered at that time. but Melanchthon continued to alter the document. And so that's the difference. We've got the UAC and the AAC, the Altered Augsburg Confession. And the Altered Augsburg Confession was altered by Philip Melanchthon solely. That's his work. Yeah. Also mentioned there that it's sometimes called the variata, right? You know, the, yeah. that there are variations in what is presented there. And and, you know, this can be kind of confusing at times and so forth. And so, again, I think maybe a comparison like I did with the Apology and Pastor Paul McCain used to do with how the Apology came to be and so forth in terms of drafts and so forth. If we think about it like the Constitution, you know, that there may have been early drafts, but what was adopted? And so I think you make that great point with the Augsburg Confession. It was what they signed their names to, what they were willing to have their heads chopped off for. That's what was adopted. That's what was presented. And when we think about like the Constitution, there's there's a process and a way that we can make changes to that, but it's got to be agreed upon by the citizenry, right? You know, and and our elected political leaders and things of that nature, right? And it's in a sense, you know, saying yes, we agree with this. 
But, you know, as we see with our Constitution, people kind of read their own things into it and they want to change it themselves and what its meaning is and all of those sorts of things can come into play as we read a document like that. But that doesn't really matter what they think or what they would like to change it to or whatever they alter their own Constitution. It's what is agreed upon as our Constitution, right? And so when it comes to the Augsburg Confession, even though he's the author of it, Philip Melanchthon, he didn't do it in isolation, right? He did it with these other Lutheran theologians with the input of Luther himself. And this is what we agreed upon and what the Lutheran princes agreed upon and said, this is what we hold to. So he has no right, even though he's the author, to make these changes and alterations to it, especially, you know, as it gets into some pretty major things here. Um, So we have some other things that we want to cover here in terms of some concluding remarks and everything. But I think this is an important point to hit is to get into that change there in Article 10 on the Lord's Supper that he makes in that variata. So just get us into with just a couple minutes here before we'll need to shift to those concluding notes uh, as we wrap up here today. But get us some into those changes that Melanchthon makes to that Article 10 on the Lord's Supper. Right. So in the 1530 edition, the one that we have, the unaltered Augsburg Confession, Article 10 reads, Concerning the Lord's Supper, they teach that the body, blood of Christ are truly present under the form of bread and wine and are distributed to those that eat in the Lord's Supper, and they disapprove of those who teach otherwise, right? But in the 1540 edition, it reads, Concerning the Lord's Supper, they teach that with bread and wine are truly exhibited the body and blood of Christ to those who eat in the Lord's Supper. And just right there, truly exhibited, that wording was enough of a compromise on the Lord's Supper with John Calvin, the Calvinists, to where John Calvin himself signed the 1540 edition of the Augsburg Confession, the Variata, because those words truly exhibited do not speak against John Calvin and, of course, Calvinists and much of the Reform, their belief that the body and blood of our Lord are not truly present in the bread and wine. So that is a significant change that Melanchthon is not, of course, authorized to make, not only in the Confession, but also in our scriptural teaching. So it's very serious. Yeah. And, you know, as I brought in the congregations I served in Southern Illinois, directly across the river, the Mississippi River from Perry County, the original settlement of the Lutherans that would form the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And again, just kind of a different historical background where I am now up here in Northern Iowa, North Central Iowa, you know, kind of different groups of Germans came over and formed these Lutheran churches up here. But for those who were in Perry County, and across the river in southern Illinois and other pockets throughout the United States as well, but especially that group, you can begin to see why putting UAC was so important for them into their official name as a congregation. Because think of what those particular Saxon Lutherans were escaping when they came over and settled in Perry County in southern Illinois, right? They were leaving the state church, which was this forced union of Calvinism and the Reformed Church with the Lutherans and all sorts of horrible practices like making them break the bread, the host breaking the host in front of the congregation to kind of say, you know, see, oh, there's no Jesus in here. There's no true presence. 
Uh, that was the reform teaching, you know, merely at best, you know, and there's kind of a spectrum here, but at best for the reformed, it's a spiritual presence for them. Right. And so right. this is a significant change that alters. And I like how you highlighted there. It alters the doctrine of scripture, which the Lutherans, uh, especially Luther himself, would not be okay with. Right. And Melanchthon's not authorized to make that change. And that's not what we teach in the Lutheran Church, Missouri, saying, but you begin to see why this was so important, especially for particular groups that formed what eventually became the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. That again, it's in all of our congregations, even here in North Central Iowa. It is the unaltered Augsburg Confession that we subscribe to as pastors, as congregations. That's what we hold to in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. But for particular congregations, this was a, a very real and important matter. Um, hate to rush through that and so forth, but uh, with just about two minutes left here, I want to let you give us some other concluding notes here and kind of give us a wrap-up as we, we wrap up this series on the Augsburg Confession here and continue to push forward into confessing other things from the Book of Concord as we go forward here. Sure. The Augsburg Confession is certainly our guide to what we have as a completed project as our Lutheran symbols go in the Book of Concord, right? Uh, we had a great need that arose in the church because of the variata, these revisions that were made by Philip Melanchthon to our confession. That caused all sorts of problems within the church. We had the crypto-Calvinist controversy. We had controversy with synergism. Uh, these are a lot of big terms that I've just thrown out. I won't take time to define them. Needless to say, we had different groups, different factions that would point to these revisions that were done by Melanchthon and say, hey, look, this is not a closed book where our confession is concerned. There's more to the story. And that wasn't true. And so thank God our Lord used this to bring us confessors like Martin Chemnitz, who actually brought the church together around a confession, namely the formula of Concord. And it's around the formula of Concord, the solid declaration that we unite. And that leads us to completing our symbols that we have in the Book of Concord. So we are led by Chemnitz into a stronger confession. And likely this is a result of what happened with the treatment of the Augsburg Confession by the Philippists, by Melanchthon and those who were following Melanchthon. That is well said by our guest today, Pastor Jim Pierce. And we thank you for joining us for Concord Matters and taking us through this conclusion of the Augsburg Confession, wrapping up our series here as we went through the Augsburg Confession, getting us into the apology of the Augsburg Confession, talking about the unaltered Augsburg Confession, and ultimately, as you left us there, why this confession matters for our Lutheran confessions and the Lutheran confession in general that we still confess today. So thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure having you join us here today, Pastor Pierce. It's been my pleasure, Pastor Smith. And thank you also to our underwriter, Wicking Vicar. Check out their performance clerical wear at wickingvicar.com. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>